0: Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. A hard reset. That's what the President Biden's team has set out to do in less than one month of being in the White House. Executive orders reversing dozens of Trump era policies and an entirely different vision of what America should be. Many things, but perhaps not first. To help us with analysis on all this, I want to invite back to the program Victoria Coates, who is the senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, former senior policy advisor to the Secretary of Energy, deputy national security advisor for Middle Eastern and North African affairs under President Trump, and before that, national security advisor for Senator Ted Cruz, And of course, what many might not know about her and which is most impressive to me is a PhD in art art history from the University of Pennsylvania, a a terrific school, and uh, is the author of David Sling, A History of Democracy in 10 Works of Art. Welcome to the program, Victoria.
1: Thank you, Lisa, so much, uh, and for that kind introduction, although I'm reminded of what my uh, former boss, Don Rumsfeld, used to say, uh, which makes it sound like I can't hold a job.
0: Um, <laughs> no, but I, no, I, I, really... I would just say you were very young when you started. Um, and and I... I have been very fortunate enough to have known you through most of those chapters of, of your life um, and connected with you early on in my career, which has been fantastic. I look to you as someone who's just incredibly brilliant and um, grounded, just grounded. Someone who is just um, so knowledgeable and logical, um, which sometimes is is unique in, in Washington, DC. So thank you for everything you do. But I want to start with the fun stuff. Uh, a okay. PhD in art history, how did that even happen?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh it, it happened because my, my father, who had a minor in art history in Harvard in the 50s, Recommended one day that uh, I'd been taking a lot of politics classes in, in college that I take art history because it, it's good for crossword puzzles. Uh, and I took him up on that and just fell in love with the discipline. You know, it, art history is, is history with pictures. The whole premise of David Sling is to use objects as primary source documents. So if you want to know about the development of democracy in ancient Athens, learning about the Parthenon is in a way, you know, learning the history of democracy. And and that's the, the thread that ties, ties the book together. So, you know, in my academic work, I like to try to introduce people to some, sometimes it's a reintroduction to something very familiar uh, like Michelangelo's David, for example, and try to look at it in a little bit of a different way to understand both the time period it was created in and then how it has existed throughout its history. And so it's, it's a different way to study history, but a very valuable one.
0: You make it sound so easy. I took one art history course, and that was in Spain, in Spanish when I was studying abroad. But it was perhaps one of the most challenging courses I ever took. So it's not that easy. But um, how did you then make the jump to foreign policy? That's not such a natural segue.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it is unusual. Uh, I've been remarkable. That the last person who did it was Anthony Blunt, and he, of course, was a communist Soviet spy uh, in, in in England in the '60s. So that's not maybe my best model. But I I always had a dual track with with politics and uh, with my academic work. I find it very beneficial to have kind of an active period of life and then maybe a more contemplative scholarly period uh, to offset it. And um, when when Secretary Rumsfeld retired in the winter of, of 2006, uh, he, had, he had known of me uh, a little bit and got, his staff got in touch and asked if, if I wanted, to, or if I knew anyone, I guess that was the first conversation who would help with his autobiography, what became known and unknown. Um, and you, know, you have one of these kind of swerve moments where I went up to my husband's office and I said, you know, it's such a shame that no, none of my academic friends will, will help him uh, because it's such an incredible American story. But, you know, the country was so polarized then, although it looks like child's play now. Right. Um, and my my husband looked at me and he said, you know, what, what's your next 40 years look like? You know, you teach at Penn. Your first book's about to come out from the Getty. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is this the next 40 years? And I said, I don't think it is. And he said, "Go up and tell him you'll do it. It was a little bit
0: more complicated than that, but really not much. Amazing, I mean, these are the moments that I think when people look back Mm -hmm. and they just say, that's when it happened. And um, we're thankful for that because we need you in this space. Um, Although I'm sure Penn was very, very very remiss to let you go. Um, Let's, you know, we heard, President Joe Biden deliver his first um, speech on foreign policy. It was delayed, I think, by a week or two because of the, the snowstorm in D.C., um, so it was very much anticipated. Um, and what I'd like to do, he, he, he outlined what we could basically say as a summary it was just a reset um, of all things Trump era, uh, particularly in, in foreign policy. Um, And uh, let's go area by area, I'd like to get your take on what the next four years will mean for us in terms of both policy and posturing. Uh, And first, uh, of course, is a very hot area of the Middle East, which has been since biblical times and probably will be in terms of foreign policy for us forever, Um, Israel. Uh, what we talked about, you and I, um, on Monday night, If those who have tuned in for our foreign policy power panel, saw um, Victoria and, and two other colleagues discuss the Middle East uh, you know, um, very much in depth. But we talked about the delay in calling uh, our ally, Bibi Netanyahu, in Israel. And um, since then, the phone call did take place yesterday. Um, what took so long? What took so long?
1: I don't I don't know. I mean, some,
0: some of it can
1: be circumstantial and scheduling. But at the same time, this didn't have to be a story. Uh, you know, regardless of who the prime minister of Israel is, Israel is one of our key allies, in, if not the key ally in the Middle East. And, you know, a lot has changed in the region since now President Bi- Biden was vice president uh, due to the Abraham Accords and the sort of reset of the map. You know, I would have thought he would have been much more eager to reach out and uh, to, to reconnect with Israeli colleagues and, and, and really get to know what their new circumstances are. So certainly that was discouraging, uh, that it was not more of a priority, but I'm very happy that it, it has finally happened.
0: Yeah. um, And sticking with that part of the world there, you know, obviously, that wasn't a subtle move, like you said, you know, that phone call could have taken place. He called a lot of of adversaries ahead of Netanyahu, which wasn't a good look. Um, You know, how about how quickly, um, you know, President Biden decided to reinstate that aid to the Palestinians? Um, You know, what's what's the about face in terms of of going forward in that that crisis in particular?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a curious move uh, because of the Abraham Accords, you know, the message from our Arab partners and allies to the Palestinians was, you know, we have given you every opportunity. We have given you hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over decades to try to support your cause. And we cannot no longer in 2021 uh, give you a veto over our foreign policy. And, you know, Israel has been such a massive success story. And the the Israel that has emerged in, you know, the second decade of the 21st century is, is a powerhouse and mm-hmm. punches so hugely above its weight and, you know, a huge asset to the United States. And, you know, be frank about it, we've made a historic investment in Israel. It's paid off uh, extremely well. And I think mm-hmm. been ex- very, very positive for us, uh, but, you know, that that's an enormously important relationship that needs to be uh, both preserved and and attended to very, very carefully.
0: And what, what about the Abraham Accords? I mean, we heard both from Jared Kushner and uh, President Trump um, mm-hmm. near the end of, of his term that there are a handful of countries that are in queue um, to perhaps sign on to the Abraham Accords. Obviously, we're all waiting to see if Saudi Arabia um, basically who dominates the region will be one of those. What will happen um, with, with these policy changes? What could possibly happen to the future of the Abraham Accords?
1: Well, I mean, there's certainly been some very positive signals out of the kingdom. As, as you know, Lisa, I was, I was there for a long period this fall. And uh, you know, we, there are obviously discussions about these developments and certainly the Saudi's decision to allow, allow uh, overflight and mm-hmm. airspace was a very significant one um, and so I think I think those were all positive in, indicators you know there are other countries I don't I don't want to you know reveal anybody's intentions before they've made a decision but certainly momentum was in our favor my concern would be that some of the actions of the current administration in terms of the freeze of the arms sales the reimposition mm-hmm. of the aluminum tariffs uh, you know these and then uh, there was actually a letter from Senator Inhofe uh, today, and and I think 26 or 27 other senators protesting the recognition of West of uh, Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. You know, these are all things that can destabilize the Abraham Accords. Uh, you know, we had a very long period of a historical reality of hostility to Israel. We've now had roughly six months of of a much greater rapprochement. Uh, it would be a real shame if if the actions that are taken now would undermine that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, um, exactly to your point, um, it seems like the Biden administration is dealing with an entirely different Middle East. Um, the the investment we did make into the Abraham Accords mm-hmm. only fortified those changes or that momentum that we were already Seeing with the people of the region, I call the Abraham Accords the real Arab Spring because we mm-hmm. saw that coming of age. Uh, coming, it was it was happening for a long time, and and kudos, of course, to Donald Trump and, and Jared Kushner for really um, enterprising and 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 finding out finding an innovative way to um, hone in on on that on those changes. Now when the Biden administration decides to, for example, sign back on to the UN um, the uh, Human Rights Council that we pulled out of, mainly because of the way they were treating Israel, when they decide to reinstate aid to the Palestinians, when they re- decide to cancel a, a uh, deal to give fighter jets to the UAE and the Saudis, when they decide to take the Houthis off the terror list. Do we... In your opinion, do we stand a chance of just being on the wrong side of history for the next four years? Or will the U.S. have an influential say in how the Middle East goes forward?
1: We certainly can have an influential say. say, I think, you know, as I I was mentioning before, you know, the idea that the Biden administration, the U.S. perspective, would hand the veto back to the Palestinians that the Arabs took off the table so the Israelis start looking to the Arabs to support on the Palestinian issue. I mean, that's got a kind of through the looking glass to it. So, you know, I, I obviously were very concerned um, that that really a historic opportunity might be squandered, but it would be my hope that, that you know, when sort of cooler heads, obviously there's the rush of the first 100 days of any presidency, but when cooler heads prevail and they really look at the situation, they'll see obvious benefits to this and to expanding it, certainly they've said some positive things about it. So uh, it would be my my hope that they will come around to, to recognizing this for really the gift that it is.
0: Yeah, and um, let's move to the, the biggest um, challenge slash uh, um, symbolic move for the next four years will be the the Iran deal. Um, we're currently playing a game of chicken. President Biden has said that um, he won't remove the sanctions, even though the Iran regime has demanded that they may, that we make the first move, that the United States remove the sanctions, and the uh, United States demanding that the. Uh, Iranian regime go back to um, complying with the deals, the the, uh, the terms that were set um, in the 2015 deal. So obviously, there's a lot of back and forth. But we also know that they are the administration is very eager to get back into a deal. So what do you see happening, and what's the timeline here? Well, the
1: timeline is probably pretty short. Uh, You know, you have the presidential elections coming up in Iran in June, um, and obviously, as always, the supreme leader will pick the candidates, and then cook the outcome for whatever his desired outcome is. You know, we could see a repeat of uh, of what we we had in the spring or the summer rather of 2009 with the Green Revolution. You know, it would be my hope. Uh, President Obama himself has said that not not being more supportive of that was was an error at the time. So hopefully that that would be a lesson learned. If the Iranian people take it into their heads to uh, to protest, what will be the same kind of of as I said, cooked uh, elections that we've been having for 42 years. So you know, I think you know that that potential uh, for, for positive change in Iran should not be discounted in an eagerness to get back into some version of the JCPOA because unfortunately at this point, you know, you could really argue that it was fraudulently negotiated on the part of the Iranians because of course they didn't reveal their previous nuclear plans and the obvious military dimension of their nuclear plans, which was revealed uh, by the Israelis, obviously from the confiscated uh, archive from, from Tehran. So so that whole deal was was brokered on a lie. And, right. you know, fool fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So if they think they can trust the Iranians to strike a deal after everything that's been revealed, you know, with this regime, it really is is hard for me to believe that's going to be successful. And so the uh, you know the hope with the the Cyrus accords that we discussed earlier in the week is that we can make a very clear offer to the Iranian people uh, that, that there is a more prosperous secure future there for the taking for them uh, that that the united states is sincere that israel is sincere that our gulf friends are sincere that you know they they want they want to lower tensions they want greater peace and prosperity and you know that that's going to have to be a decision for the iranian people
0: Right. And for those who may have missed Monday's uh, power panel, uh, the Cyrus Accords are an initiative that have been proposed by Victoria and Len um to um, mimic something along the lines of the Abraham Accords to bring a future of peace and prosperity between Iran and Israel, the people of Iran and and Israel, um, we had a very in depth conversation about that, and you can check that out on our, our website if you missed it because it's just fascinating and it's a, it's a tremendous idea. Um, you know what's interesting is that you you look at uh, the Iranian regime, you look at the mullahs, and uh, the the rhetoric from the White House hasn't been. Overly soft just yet. Um, you've heard Biden say, you know, you have to comply, and, and we're not going to remove the sanctions. It's a no. Um, but but we do know that the mullahs are anticipating an easy time with um, the current White House. How did they get that that idea? And um, to to what extent um, can this be reversed so that they take us seriously? Well, I think
1: I think the. I believe there are now up to four statements out of the State Department about the Houthi in Yemen show just how internally conflict that policy is. Uh, Because on the one hand, you had the intention on, or the the stated intention on the part of Secretary Blinken to remove the designation of uh, the Houthi as a foreign terrorist organization on uh, February 16th, which would have been this Monday. Uh they they had to come out and issue a statement condemning the Houthi for taking pot shots at civilian targets in Saudi Arabia. And then they had to come out and condemn the Houthi for basically besieging a million innocent Yemeni civilians uh, in in Mabi, like M- I always get that wrong Marib uh, in in Yemen, you know it, it it's as if, you know they they are insisting. The Houthi are not terrorists. They're not going to be on the FTO because they know that will please Tehran and be seen as as a non sanctions kind of an olive branch, related olive branch. But on the other hand, the Houthi are behaving as they always did. You know, they are not allowing additional humanitarian relief into that poor country. Mm-hmm. They are continuing to attack uh, places where, I mean, if, if, if the rocket they or drone that they fired at Riyadh had landed, I mean, that could have landed on American citizens or interests yeah, as well right. as Saudi. So, you know, it's just it's internally conflicted. I don't think it's going to work, Um, but, you know, it it seems pretty clear that that's the direction they're headed
0: in. And uh, speaking of Secretary of State Blinken, he he did mention that he is looking to bring uh, some conservatives into his circle uh, before they make any sort of decision on the Iran deal um, this way that you know they have a more balanced approach um, were you or anyone you know approached to to help them out with this
1: uh, no no I was summarily let go from my post as president of Middle East broadcasting networks on the second day of the administration so I don't think they had much interest in in anything I had to offer on the region, uh, I don't know anyone else who has been uh, who has been approached on on that topic. You know, it certainly would be very interesting to see who they might bring in. Um, and but you know, given the direction they've already charted, you know, when Secretary Blinken said, you know, the path of diplomacy is open. For Iran, you know, if, if if they're already there, they're not even going to try to modify Iran's behavior. They're just going to open the path. Uh, I don't, I don't know. There's much that anyone views could say that would be persuasive.
0: Right. And um, speaking of your your termination, I. I wasn't going to bring it up, but since you brought it up yourself, um, thank you. You're so honest and always so kind and humble. Um, when when this when you were given this position, I, I remember just seeing him be like, perfect. Oh my gosh, they nailed it. She's the perfect person for this job, for this position. And on day two, as you said, um, you were let go. Um, and I, I turned to, I think my husband, I don't know who was near me, but I think I turned to my husband and I said, Maybe that was the mistake of the Trump administration, not letting anyone go from the previous administration. And we had so many leaks and spies and people turning to the media. Um, Was this an all out, um, you know, jihad, for lack of a better word? On anyone who was in the pro Trump team, did they let everyone go across the board? They certainly
1: seemed to be on that, on that program. And, you know, for the head of MBN, President Man, which is Myself, but then also the head of Radio Free Asia, and then Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. You know, we all had two-year contracts. You know, which and and are are not federal government entities. Uh, Mbn is a five hundred one c four, for example, mm-hmm. or c three rather. And um, you know, so so I had, you know it broke a two-year contract with no cause, and so that that's what they were willing to do. You know, basically. Break contract law in order to to get rid of Cleveland anybody. Cleveland. they Think right.
0: right.
1: What was unfortunate from my viewpoint is you know MBN really needed continuity. Uh, you know there have Correct. been a lot of of right. changes of leadership. It's an important uh, institution. Information is weaponized now. As you know, uh, we need to tell the truth as aggressively as as our adversaries lie.
0: And right, it just, it just makes it as though partisanship is the number one, um, you know, credential. It's not about merit, it's not about, you know, continuity as you said, not about knowledge, it's not about bringing in one team to train the other. On day two, um, they wanted to to clear everyone out.
1: Right, and that, you know, that's really, it's too bad. I mean, I would have been my hope, they would have actually thought my academic background was a positive for this, uh, one of the mandates for all of the uh, government supported uh, broadcasting networks is to promote democracy and freedom, you know, that I have a history there, and, you know, obviously a history in the region. So I, I you know, it would have been at least nice to be able to have a conversation with someone, uh, but they clearly were not interested in that.
0: No, well, that's too bad for them, as you said, and and lucky for us to have you um, do these types of interviews more freely and openly, and um, we're we're glad for that. Um, I want to move to China. Crazy that about ten minutes before our program, um, I saw this news, and I, I had to go looking for it, and I'll explain that in a moment. That uh, President Biden has authorized the Wuhan Institute of Virology to receive U.S. taxpayer money through 2024. I saw this just as a, a headline from a friend who sent it to me, and I said, "Oh no, no way! This is fake news. There, there's no way!" And I went searching for it, and um, it, you know, you can't find it on Google. I had to go through an, another search engine to find it, and and sure enough, there were um, two articles on this. Um, uh, it's mind-boggling. This is taxpayer money going to China that has given us no transparency. The WHO has said that we've come back empty-handed. First, they said we abandoned our mission, but then they acknowledged that they got nothing out of the Chinese. and now we're going to give them money to keep their secrets in the lab. How does this work? What, yeah, it's it's
1: I, I I don't know the details of that particular situation, but you know, this is what the most concerning things about the new administration have actually been Special Envoy Kerry's comments about our need to make concessions uh, to China on climate. And I, you know, the, the Chinese leadership, starting with President Xi, has said a lot of things that have been very well received in Europe. Uh, for example, about their desire to be a responsible, uh a responsible player in the climate space and then they don't do anything about it. And suddenly it's beholden on the United States to put the bill, to make concessions to them, to persuade them to simply do the right thing. You know, we're not asking, mean, we're only suggesting that they do what they've already committed publicly to doing. So, you know, this, this um, sort of impulse to make these concessions and to appease them, to try to modify their behavior you know this has all been tried before it's never
0: worked. So yes.
1: you know, if, if the idea yeah if the idea is here that somehow we'll get insight into Wuhan, I think that's pretty pretty much not going to be the case.
0: And it's not going to stop at, at Wuhan. This appeasement is going to go across the board. I want you to take a listen to this and I want to get your thoughts
2: I talked about I said look, you know, Chinese leaders, if you know anything about Chinese history it has always been the time when China has been victimized by the outer world is when they haven't been unified at home. So the central, oh, to vastly overstated, the central principle of Xi Jinping is that there must be a united, tightly controlled China. And he uses his rationale for the things he does based on that. I point out to him, no American president can be sustained as a president if he doesn't reflect the values of the United States. And so the idea I'm not going to speak out against what he's doing in Hong Kong, what he's doing with the Uyghurs in western mountains of of, uh, China and Taiwan trying to end the one China policy by making it forceful. I I said and by the way, he said he he gets it. Culturally, there are different norms in each country, and they, their leaders are expected to follow.
0: <laughs> Where do we start on this? Let's, let's unpack this one, one item at a time. First and foremost, obviously, um, people are calling this a genocide, and he's calling it different norms. Um, had this been the previous president, um, the media would have received this very, very differently.
1: Oh, of course. Um, you know, when when President Biden says stuff like this, it shows he's, he's sophisticated and diplomatic. Uh, it, that is it's going to be the media take on that. But I think, you know, it's such an egregious example of his just accepting President Xi's narrative and then repeating it in public. You know, it's it's basically Chinese propaganda. Uh, You know, this is fine, it's just different norms. No, it's millions of people in concentration camps. It's, you know, imprisoned protesters in Hong Kong and all of the other, you know, really egregious behavior that the PRC has engaged in, you know, which more and more is being exposed. And I think, you know, a much better model might have been uh, Ronald Reagan, who very frankly and openly spoke out against the atrocities of Soviet communism, but also met with his Russian counterparts and negotiated successfully with them. And so I think I think that would be perhaps a, a better model of moral clarity rather than this kind of uh, diplomatic doublespeak, which is coming out of the PRC propaganda machine.
0: Right. And, you know, the party of tolerance, the party of equality, the party of, you know, fighting for what's right and all of a sudden giving a pass to, you know, China going in and and having these these protesters in Hong Kong, you know, slaughtered or, you know, throwing um, innocent protesters into jail or what's going on, you know, throughout the region, you know, their transgressions are just given a big pass. I mean, this is around the world. We're looking at the same thing with the Iranian regime, the same thing in Russia. Mm Um, wh- why isn't the media calling them out on their hypocrisy? Is, is everyone in on this together? And why isn't this it, is like the elephant in the room? This is horrific to give this a, just a pass.
1: Well, and I think I think history you know will will really frown on this. If you look at 1989 and Tiananmen Square, I think the you know maybe not illogical mindset that we found ourselves in was after the. Berlin wall came down that that liberalization and democracy were inevitable and this would just happen and we could engage china economically and they would turn into a liberal democracy you know obviously that didn't happen so doing that again now turning a blind eye to these things giving them a pass is is not is not going to to <laughs> come to a better result. And, you know, I have to say, Lisa, you know, there's there's a lot of enthusiasm in the mainstream me- media for President Biden and his administration, but there's also a lot of discomfort with what, with what China is doing. So I think, you know, right. I, I would applaud, you know, the New York Times for their December 19th article with ProPublica about the Wuhan information right. uh,
0: campaign. You know, that that was a hard piece, the BBC,
1: BBC,
0: they were just removed from China because they did an an actual reporting piece on what's going on there. Right. Yes.
1: And so I think, you know, I think that is, uh, you know, that that could be encouraging. Uh, I don't know that they're ever going to be hard on President Biden, but hopefully they can find it in their hearts to be hard on the PRC.
0: Right, um, and you know it it seems like it's going to be impossible for this administration to take a tough stance on China, even though they know that they're stealing our technology and our patents and um, you know our jobs and manufacturing, and they're not playing fairly on on the world stage. but um, it's just it's scary where we will be in four years after more damage is done by the Chinese government. Um, I want to move to Russia um and uh you know in the beginning of President Biden's foreign policy speech he, he began with Russia thinking he's taking a very again um about face from from uh President Trump's um, relationship with Russia, which is fabricated of course but if, but but that's the 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 vision um and he said I made it clear to President Putin in a manner very different from my predecessor that the days of the United States rolling over in the face of Russia's aggress- aggressive actions are over. Uh, what happened within hours of going into the White House? This administration got right back into the start the uh, Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty right mm-hmm. away, and no leveraging, no preconditions, nothing. Did that really give them the that that sign and that that message?
1: Well, unfortunately, no. I, mean, I think the uh, the extension the five year extension of New Start was really a. Uh, uh, Big mistake again. You can go back and look at New Start. There is uh, strong evidence that the, the Russians negotiated that tra- treaty fraudulently, which is something uh, I think that the Congress should t- take another look at. But I think, you know, in terms of being tough on Russia, certainly the myriad sanctions that we put on Russia during the course of the Trump administration, I think the rebalancing of NATO, particularly in terms of European defense budgets, was a very clear signal. Uh, to Russia, that, that we were not going to simply let them uh, extend their influence over Eastern or, God forbid, Western Europe. And I think the main challenge that will be coming up in, in coming weeks and months is Nord Stream 2, the pipeline from Russia to Germany that the Germans are very enthusiastic about. They think putting their energy security into Moscow's hands is somehow a good idea. Uh, it isn't, it's going to be a tool for coercion and blackmail. And I think there are many other uh, ways to diversify energy or uh, Europe's energy stream that would be far more beneficial.
0: And um, because you have an ex- experience in the energy sector as well, mm-hmm. um, I want to get your your take on on Keystone. Um, you know, what was your initial. um you know, what, what do you think it's it's done to us as a, as a nation, uh, particularly with many voting for uh, President Biden to not do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, he let he let a lot of people down.
1: Yeah, I think I think Keystone is a very unfortunate episode. In a way, we have kind of a tale of two pipelines here. You know, one that leads to greater American energy diversification, supply and security, one that leads to the potential blackmail of Germany, you know, these are enormously important conduits. And one of the, you know, great good news stories of really the last uh, 10 years, particularly the last four years, of the American energy renaissance and the kind of leverage that gives us over global energy markets and, uh, you know, our ability to supply ourselves needs to be, you know, it's not something you want to do because obviously, you know, you're, you're part of a global system. but. You know, our emergence as one of the three big producers is a game changer as much as the, as the Abraham Accords were a game changer. And, you know, unilaterally surrendering that by, you know, canceling a major pipeline is 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 just, you know, it it's it's like the extension of New Start. You're 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 giving something away for free and 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 get getting rid of your strategic advantages and it's just it's it's deeply unfortunate it's unfortunate for people whose livelihoods uh are ruined by this and you know it 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 didn't have to happen and so that's an issue i'm going to continue to remain very active on
0: yeah um actually speaking of of which um you are now a senior fellow for um the center for security policy Mm -hmm. um our good friends over there Um, and uh what are you working on what's in, what's in the future for you? What could we uh see from you very soon
1: well, I think i mean obviously the cyrus accords uh that that op ed came out about three weeks ago now, and you know we are starting to build out what you know what the accords look like you know I think you know Len had a, a really remarkable vision there for you know this this sort of spark of contact hopefully between the iranian and and Israeli and American people. I think the letter that came out of Iran uh, around the same time, signed by individual members of the opposition who are in Iran, so they're vulnerable, is is something uh that really is their way to message us that they're there. You know, the Iranian regime will tell you there's no opposition, they're not organized, they're fractured, they're internally divided, you know, they don't exist, you have to deal with us. Well, that's not the case. They've told us who they are, they've told us that they're there. And so I think you know building the Cyrus Accords is something I want to focus on very much, and then also looking at an, initiatives to help the Iranian people communicate. I think we you know, there has been traditionally a great deal of bipartisan congressional interest in supporting ways to increase internet access to uh, mm-hmm. encrypt uh, user identity so you can't be targeted, and I really uh, that's. That's something I very,
0: very much wanted to work on uh, probably starting mm. next month. Wow. And that's tremendous. And, um, I will be translating our panel from Monday night on the Cyrus Mm -hmm. Courts, as well as this interview, into Farsi, because Victoria, what you're doing for the Iranian people is so tremendous. Um, You, Len, Vijay, all of you are are working tirelessly to um, really echo the the voices of people who cannot be heard even though they are out there, as you said, um, trying to get our attention like they did in 2009, but on an entirely different level. I think that's what people perhaps may not get from the media is that they are there and they're they're just unabashedly on the streets, willing to risk their lives uh, to tell us what they want. And um, what we've heard even from the Trump administration was beha- we're looking for behavioral change. We're not looking for regime change because you know it's it's not something that we want to cause. It's not something that it's in, in our hands, but we can definitely give them a voice and a platform to do so. So I will definitely be translating this interview as well so that they can hear about all the work that you're doing. And I thank you for being with us today. Unfortunately we're out of time but that was perfect. Um, and uh, hopefully we will have you back here again and we will rely on you your vision your expertise uh all of it to help us make sense of this thank you so well, much victoria thank and you uh, hope we talk to you soon and for all of you if you'd like to subscribe to our our podcast go to youtube.com slash lisa daftary. and to sign up for our daily top 10 email go to foreign slash newsletter and you can sign up there thank you so much see you again next week